Well, something about this letter. Uh, Paul is writing from prison. This is one of his prison epistles. And I, I've discovered as I talk to folks who, who are suffering in affliction that they, they speak with a, a deep and abiding sense in their relationship with Jesus Christ. There, there's just something different about folks who, who have been suffering for, for a long time. And, and as, they, as they talk, you just have, you just, there's a flavor to their speech about, about their relationship with the Lord and how they, they deeply abide with Jesus Christ, especially in the midst of their affliction. And I think we find that with Paul here as he writes from prison as he writes from, from a place. Now, his first imprisonment was, was a house arrest. His second imprisonment was a place that was, was so deep within, in a sense, the bowels of the prison, so dark and so dank that, that Epaphroditus, when he was looking for Paul to bring a letter to him, spent three days trying to find him. So when we read Paul's prison epistles, let's, let's be aware of the affliction that he is suffering under. That numerous commentators extol Ephesians for its exceptional simplicity. It's, it's not a book of, although per, Paul uses the word mystery a number of times in this book, it's not a book of mystery. It's, it's actually a book of basic, simple Christian doctrine. All of the basic Christian doctrines of the faith we can find in the book of Ephesians. It is it's just a wonderful, simple book. We can see the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the church, and many others we see in this letter that Paul writes to the church of Ephesus. And more importantly, he writes to us. But even in its simplicity, there are untold riches in this book. One particular author describes Ephesians as the Grand Canyon of Scripture. It's breathtakingly beautiful, and it's inexhaustible in its truth. Uh, when, when my son David graduated from, from high school, I asked him what he wanted to do as a, as a graduation gift, and he wanted to backpack the Grand Canyon. So I said, sure, let's do it. And we told Marilyn, her first response was, you're going to die. That was, <laughs> you're too old to do that. But, but no, 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 I, we did. We, we, we drove, we, we flew out there, and, and we drove up to the South Rim. It's about a four-hour drive from Phoenix. And, and I, I remember driving up to the South Rim of the Grand Canyon, um, there are some things that people describe as amazing and, and in, in, almost inexplicable, and, and, and most times they really don't deliver. The Grand Canyon delivers. Uh, it, is, it is an inexhaustible place. You, you just Until you see it, you cannot describe it. Until you stand on, on the south rim or the north rim of the canyon, you cannot you cannot describe it. It is just, there's this beauty and this majesty and this expansiveness to it. But interestingly enough, that's not all there is to the Grand Canyon. We hiked down and we camped for three days. And, and what we discovered in the canyon 
was as beautiful and expansive as we discovered just looking out over the landscape of the Grand Canyon. We discovered much more as we hiked down and spent three days. And, and you're, you're, we're camping down on the bottom. It's nighttime. There's no artificial light, no ambient light. There are just the stars. So you are in the darkest of places and you look up and you see the expanse of heaven in a way that you've never seen it before. All because we were able to hike down into the canyon. Brothers and sisters, that's what we want to do with Ephesians. We do do want to see an overview of the book, but we want to hike down into the pages, into the words, into the doctrine that Paul describes here for us in this prison epistle. We want to hike deep down. What do we know about the book of Ephesians? Because we want to explore it the same way we explore the Grand Canyon. I mean, what we see first and foremost, and, and just have an overview of this letter, is that it is the mystery of the gospel revealed in Jesus Christ. The mystery of the gospel revealed in Jesus Christ and lived out by his chosen people, the church, you and me. So what do we know about the book of Ephesians? Well, we know that, that this is a letter from Paul. We know it's what would most likely be a circular letter. letter. In other words, it was circulated among a group of churches in Asia Minor. Now, you would be familiar with, with a, a number of the cities those churches are, are situated in because you, you've read about them in, in Revelation. Cities, uh, uh, not just Ephesus, but Laodicea, Sardis, Philadelphia, Thyatira, Pergamum, and Smyrna. And Ephesus was the city in that hub of cities in Asia Minor. Ephesus sat on the Caister River, just right up the, the road from the Aegean Sea, so a coastal, almost a coastal city, and it was a city of great economic wealth. It was a city that was important militarily to the Romans and to the Greeks, and so there were numerous battles fought over the desire to rule Ephesus. It was a city... Because of its location, it was a gateway to the rest of Asia. And so, so much economy did come through there. There was a highway there, so caravans would travel there. It was at the head of a river, so, so boats would come and trade was, was significant in this city. But it was also and mostly famous for its temple. It was a temple that housed the goddess Diana. And there was, I mean, much of the city worshipped in this temple. It was a temple that was built to the size, one and a half times the size of a football field. And it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a huge place. And right next to it was a stadium that seated 25,000 people. That is Ephesus. It was a melting pot for the nations. It was a melting pot for ethnic groups. It was a melting pot for religions, but mostly the religion that worshipped Diana. Greeks and Romans and Jews and Gentiles mingled freely in the city where trade took place. It was a city that was known as a decadent city. 
It was a city that was known as an immoral city because the god of Diana, the goddess Diana was a, a fertility god. It was a city not unlike the cities that we know of today in our own, in our own country, not in our own world. And in Acts 18, Paul first comes to Ephesus. He doesn't stay very long, but then in Acts 19, we see that he comes back and he spends three years establishing the church, preaching in the synagogue, preaching in the hall of Tyrannus, preaching to Jew and Gentile alike and persuading them. And Luke records that all of Asia, all of Asia in this major city, all of Asia heard the gospel. Paul almost sets the city on fire, literally. As the converted begin taking all their occult books and burning them. Now, Luke records that the value of these books, you're thinking Ephesus, all right? 2,000 years ago, the value of these books that were burned in response to hearing the gospel totaled half a million dollars. Half a million dollars back then. Well, it created an uproar. And 25,000 enraged citizens filled the city because they saw their economy tanking as a result of people coming to Christ. And persecution arose. And it is in this city that God is pleased to establish a church. It's in this city. Now, I would love to see the mission presentation for this church plant. (laughs) There are 25,000 enraged people waiting for you when you arrive. (laughs) God sees fit to plant a church in this city. It is to the Christians of this city attempting to live for God in the midst of utter paganism, persecution, enraged people that Paul directs his letter. So as we, as we read through Ephesians over these next six months, brothers and sisters, just, just remember where they started. Remember what Paul was trying to accomplish. Remember what was going on because the history of this city, the history of Paul's visits, they're, they're, significantly important to this letter. Well, what's fascinating to me is as we read this letter, as we, as we go through the book of Ephesians, I think you're going to discover that Paul doesn't specifically talk about any challenges to the church. It's not a corrective letter, which is often the, the, the letters that he writes there's, there's no significant challenges that the Ephesians are facing as far as false teachers. Or Paul's not writing to that end. Instead, what he does is he draws their attention to Jesus Christ. He spends the first three chapters just extolling and exalting the majesty of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then he spends the next three chapters talking about us. And what Christ's resurrection, his crucifixion, what the gospel means to us as we live in the Ephesus of our day. So look at Ephesians. We're just going to begin with chapter 1 and Paul's opening 
remarks, his opening salutation. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes to inspire and envision an infant church that being in Christ, they have much to do for Christ. Hence the title of our series, In Him and For Him. And we see this thought already being shared in just the first two opening verses of this letter. John Stott writes of Ephesians, and I don't know, do we have? No, okay. New church. John Stott writes, he says, Ephesians makes itself welcome and is a charming document just because it dares to let shine nothing else but God's love and election, Christ's death and resurrection, and the Spirit's might and work among men. It dares to let shine nothing else but God's love and election, Christ's death and resurrection, and the Spirit's work, might and work among men. So let's begin by just examining this, this opening salutation from Paul to the Ephesians church. And here's my, here's my proposition for this passage. Having been predestined to salvation by God's love, which we will see in these, in these passages, not just today, but, but in, the, in the days to come, having been predestined by salvation, but to salvation by God's love, we now live in him and for him. We've been predestined to salvation by God's love. And so we live in him and for him. We live in him and for him. And two main points, two, just two points this morning. Number one is our story. Number two is our identity. Our story, which is what God has done for us. And our story begins by being revealed in the author, Paul, who is, a, again, a prisoner in Rome. Paul begins by making the claim that should immediately grab our attention. He's an apostle. He's an apostle by the will of God. He's claiming to be a messenger of God. In other words, he's saying, my words to you, these words that we are reading are authoritative. They're not words from a man. They're words from God. And so pay attention. Listen well as this letter is read to you. Because this letter was read to the church. Listen well. This is God speaking. And just on, on a side note, that must be our approach every time we open the Bible. That must be our approach every time I stand up here on a Sunday morning or somebody else stands up here or you are in a meeting and you open God's word and you, you read scripture to somebody. That you are encountering God. That you're not, you're not reading words from men. Yes, they're words written by men. But you're reading words spoken to you by God. That you are coming face to face 
but the creator of the universe, the one who has come down to dwell among men, he is speaking to us. There, that is why it is called the Holy Bible. It is holy to us because these are holy words. So Paul is, is first and foremost making that claim that he is a messenger by the will of God. But what is important to note is that Paul establishes from the get, beginning what is most important to him. God's sovereign election. Paul is saying, I, I am an apostle by the will of God. Paul's apostolic is important. His apostolic calling means something to us because he's a messenger from, from God. But more important than Paul's apostolic calling, more important than Paul being an apostle, apostle is how he became an apostle. He became an apostle because he became a Christian. By the will of God. And as you read later on, as we will study in the, in the coming weeks, verses 3 through 23, Paul expounds on the doctrine of election, the truth of God electing us. And moving into to chapter 2, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God elected us. And Paul is saying these words are authoritative. I am a messenger from God because God first elected me. He chose me. I am here. It's come about by God's sovereign election of me. Paul hated the church, but God loved Paul. What an amazing turn of events from being the foremost of persecutors of the church of Jesus Christ to becoming its most ardent spokesman. What a story Paul has to tell of the unfathomable riches, the unfathomable love of God in Jesus Christ. That while he was an enemy of God, God still loved him. He was an enemy of God. Christ died for him. This was the theme of Paul's life, and it's the heart of Paul's message in every epistle he's written. It's the gospel, the good news. Christ has died for our sins. And it starts with our story, Paul's story, that God chose him. He was an apostle by the will of God. Paul, our story is no different than Paul's. If you have put your trust in Christ, your story is the same as Paul's. You were an enemy of God. You were a hater of God. You were a persecutor of God. You were a persecutor of his church. That's who you were. And your story is the same. That by the will of God, God chose you to be holy and blameless and his beloved. God chose you. That's our story. That's Paul's story. What a story that it is. What a story that that Paul 
begins in just this opening verse. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. You did not will yourself to be saved. You did not wake up one morning and think, I'm just going to get saved today. You did not wake up one morning and think, you know, I'm just, I'm just tired of sin. That's not what, that's not what scripture teaches. Paul, Paul was on his way to Damascus. Not Leto's in Damascus, and not this Damascus. Paul's on his way to Damascus, and God intervenes. You talk about the power of God to salvation when Christ appears on the scene. And do you understand? Paul, although an apostle, although a, a writer of most of the New Testament, although one of the most famous saints in all of history, Paul is no different than you and me. That his story is our story. That when Paul writes by the will of God, he is not just thinking of himself. He's thinking of the Ephesians. And we read about that in later verses. He's telling the Ephesians, you have been chosen by the will of God. That's not new doctrine to you. It's not new truth to you. But brothers and sisters, I, let, me, let me make an appeal to you. Don't let that become commonplace. Don't let the idea of being chosen become commonplace. To be chosen is something quite special. To be chosen by God to eternal life. To be a child of God. To be chosen based on nothing you've done. In fact, in spite of what you've done. Paul, Paul begins this rich epistle simply by saying, by the will of God. You're here today by the will of God. That's our story. That's Paul's story. Our story is revealed in the author. But our our story is also revealed in the message. And skip down to verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is, what is the message of Paul's epistle? This is the message. It's, it's one of bold affirmation for all that God has done in you and for you. And the result is grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul states in chapter 2 that we've been saved by grace and goes on to say he himself is our peace. That's the benefit of being chosen by the will of God. You have a life filled with grace and peace. Now, I understand that doesn't mean every day seems like there's grace and peace. But 
what this life is compared to the life to come. Even Paul, as he goes down, and we, we'll, we'll catch this next week, he talks about being blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's talking about a future day, a future time that we live for. But, but he, he's talking about now because he's extending to this church and to you grace and peace, grace to you. Paul states, grace to you and peace. Peace from God, our Father. Peace that you did not have prior to being chosen by God. Your life had no peace prior to being chosen by God. There was no peace because you were an enemy of God. You were not reconciled to God. And now you are reconciled to God. That's what peace is. You don't have that worry anymore. You don't have that fear anymore. You don't have that anxiety anymore. What's, what's my future hold? I can tell you what your future holds if you've trusted in Christ. You have a future of grace and peace. You have a future that, that Paul talks about Numerous times, the riches of his grace, the riches of his salvation, the riches in Christ, the unsearchable riches, the immeasurable riches. That's what your future is. In heavenly places. Our story is revealed in this message. Ephesians is, is not a corrective letter, but like one of Paul, but it's a, a, a letter of bold affirmation of what God has done for us in Christ. A letter of bold affirmation of what he's done and, and as well bold expectations, bold expectations by God for his church. So the first three, the first three chapters, we're going to see this bold, bold affirmation of what Paul is saying God has done for you. And then you're going to see in the next three chapters, chapters four through six, God's bold expectations for you and for me. So that's our story. But secondly, our identity, who we are in Christ. Look at verse one, the second part. Paul establishes our identity in three distinct ways. He says in verse one, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. The first thing Paul does is he calls us saints. It means, it means something to be a saint of all places in Ephesus. Ephesus was a decadent city. And so for Paul to call these men and women saints is of significance. To be a saint in Ephesus is to be very, very different. It's to be it's to be radically different from what that city is all about. And you know what? To be a saint here, whether it's in your workplace or your neighborhood or in Washington, D.C. area or in Charlotte, North Carolina, to be a saint in the midst of a culture that we live in is to be significantly and radically different. And it means something. And in the midst of this 
corrupt city this, where there's immorality and idolatry and all sorts of worldliness. The Christians, in a very real sense, made a loud statement because they stood for something that was very, very different. They are, they are saints. And, and the scripture in, in the Old Testament community, Israel is considered saints. They were, the Old Testament community of Israel was set apart by God to be his people. But we are the New Testament community. We are set apart by God to be his people. And Paul wants the Ephesians and he wants us to understand that. You have been set apart because you've been chosen by the will of God. You've been set apart. James Boyce says this in his commentary. If we are truly Christ's, we have a new nature, a new set of loyalties, and a new agenda. We belong to a different kingdom. We belong to a different kingdom. We are saints. Secondly, Paul tells us, he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful. We are faithful. What does that mean to be faithful? Well, I, I think, and, and I believe there are two meanings here. When Paul calls these believers in Ephesus faithful and he calls us faithful, the two ideas he has in mind is first and foremost, the faith that we have put in Christ. That there is a faith we've extended towards God. As he chose us, we needed to respond. And we responded by putting faith in Christ. So we are first and foremost, we have faith in Christ, but secondly, we have a continued faith towards Christ. That we continue in the faith, we persevere in the faith because we've been chosen by the will of God. We persevere in the faith. Matthew 10:22, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. We are remaining. We are continuing to be faithful. That is, that is who we are. That is our identity. First, we're saints. We've been set apart by God. Secondly, we are faithful. We continue in the faith as men and women of Christ. And thirdly, and most importantly, Paul says that we are in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ Jesus by God's sovereign will. 23 times, 23 times in the first three chapters, Paul uses the phrase, in him, in Christ, in whom? In. This is a spiritual union that Paul is talking about. A spiritual union that is, is not easy to grasp. These are, these are one of the mysteries. I mean, there's so many mysteries about God. How do, you, how do you explain? How do you understand? How do you comprehend an infinite God as a finite person? When we lived in Atlanta years ago, we had a, a, a problem um, with a thing called fire ants. Now, I don't know if they have fire ants here in the north, but in the north, the great northeast. But, but, in, but in Georgia, they have fire ants. And, and in Georgia, um, here they have this stuff called dirt. In, in, nor in, in Georgia, they have this stuff called clay, and that's basically the soil. It's red clay. And, and so the fire ants would 
they would get into, they'd be in your lawn and you'd wake up in the morning and there'd be these, these mounds of red clay, fine red clay dust where these fire ants would just build these and they'd, and they'd be all over your lawn. Your kids would step in them and, and fire ant bites are pretty painful. And, and so one of, the, one of the great tasks of a homeowner in, in Atlanta, Georgia is killing fire ants. And so I, I, was, I was a fairly new homeowner there. So I'm going to Home Depot and I'm buying all these, these different you know, Amdro pets kill stuff and what, and this, and I mean, I was just throwing everything at it and, and they would just, the, the mound would kind of crumble. And then the next day they just moved to a new place. And so I'm spending, I'm spending millions of dollars and hours trying to kill fire ants. And so I, I was talking to one of the guys in the church there who's from South Georgia, a farmer from South Georgia. He says, Oh, Larry, I, that's not how you kill fire ants. Let me tell you how you kill fire ants. What, what do you do? Uh, instant grits. Oh, yeah, obviously, instant grits. <laughs> he said, no, no, no. Take the grits and sprinkle them around the mound. And the ants will take them and eat them. And when they go inside their, 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 little, their little home, they'll have, get a little water. And guess what grits do? They expand. So the idea of these little ants just going, it was just, ah, what a wonderful thought. And so, so I did. I sprinkled instant grits around the mound, and, and it worked. These, these fire ants just, I didn't hear them popping, but, but they're just, they were just exploding. And you know what? That's, that, I remember thinking that that's what it's like for a finite being to try to comprehend an infinite God. We'd explode. We can't take it all in. Add a little water and it's just, we're done. God is this, the mystery of God being in Christ, the mystery of being united to Christ is beyond our comprehension. And yet Paul wants us to understand. And he wants us to appreciate it. And we must learn to be comfortable with mystery, to be comfortable with, with not understanding all there is to understand about God, but we must pursue. We must pursue this idea of understanding our union with Christ, being in Christ Jesus, as Paul declares here in verse 1. Our union with Jesus Christ makes us fellow heirs with him. Fellow heirs do you understand what that means? An heir. We, we share equally in the inheritance of all that God gives Jesus Christ. We are a fellow heir. We are one in spirit with him. We are called his brothers and his sisters. We're just not his creation. We're his brothers and his sisters. We've been promised to be raised with him. We've been promised that one day we'll be seated in heavenly places with him and we will share in all that Jesus possesses. That's what it means to be in Christ. Because we are in Christ, Peter says this, we have an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away kept in heaven for you. That's what it means 
to be in Christ. Our union with Jesus is the very essence of our salvation. The very essence. Do you see what Christ has done for us? In chapter 5, when we study the mystery of marriage and Christ and the church, I think we're once again going to be amazed and perplexed at the mystery of two becoming one flesh. And that's our experience. That's our reality of being in Christ. That we are united to Jesus Christ. Our story and our identity. We have a story. Every person in this room has a story of what God has done for them. That you have been chosen. If you've trusted in Christ, you have been chosen by God. That is your story. You also have an identity. You're a saint. You're one who is faithful. And you are in Christ. And our application, remember that as saints, we are in our own Ephesus. We live in our own world, our own Ephesus. And we've been called by the will of God, not just to be in him, but to be doing things for him. That grace and peace may be ours to the point that we are faithful. And although we live in Ephesus, here's my my application today. Although we live in Ephesus, by God's grace, let us be faithful saints who do not allow Ephesus to live in us. We've been predestined by God's love before the creation of the world that we would live in him and for him. And that is who we are. And brothers and sisters, as Grace Church, that is what we'll do.